Uh, if you would take your Bible, which I'm assuming you brought today, and open to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 is where we'll be landing today. We've been doing this series on bread. Not actually a series about bread, because, uh, I mean, I, who really cares about bread, but about what Jesus does in the book of Luke when he has bread in his hands. Three times in the book of Luke, Jesus has bread, and Luke records the same thing every time. It says Jesus blesses it, and then he breaks it, and then he gives it to others so that they can be blessed. So the series we've been doing is called Blessed, Broken, and Given. Uh, some of what I'm preaching here uh, comes from this book by Glenn Packiam. I think we're going to put the cover on the screen. Um, it's called Blessed, Broken, Given. There we go. Uh, if you would like to dig a little deeper than we're going here in the sermon, this is a fantastic book, and I would encourage you, whether you read it or listen to it, um, this would be well worth your time. Several weeks ago, uh, Sarah began to notice that there was something going on with our washing machine. Uh, now, we've been married almost 22 years, 22 years in May, and, and in that time, we've had uh, a number of things go wrong with various washing machines. And, and so my wife, being uh, as adept as she is, has figured out some of the most common causes that we've dealt with and, and how to address them. And so when something started to go wrong, I guess it was actually a few months back, um, she tried everything that she knew to try uh, to no avail. So finally she said, what do I do? I said, well, call that repairman we trust. So she called the repairman and he came in and he listened to Sarah and what was going on with the machine and what she had tried. And, and, uh, and then he went, you know, she took him down to our basement to the laundry room and, and he was down there for a little while. He tore into the machine to see what the deal was. And, and, and before long, less time than I had hoped, he came upstairs and said, all right, here's the deal. I figured out what's wrong with it and I can repair it, but the parts I need to get and the time it'll take me to do it will cost you more than a new machine will. You're better off to throw this one out and to get a new one. This one is broken. Why is it that our tendency when things are broken is to throw them out and get a new one? And not just washing machines. Like how many times in my life has someone hurt me? A friend. I thought I could count on them. Ah, forget it. I'm done. I'll, I'll find someone else to spend time with. I'll find another friend. Or how many times have we again run up against a barrier of, of one of our limitations or, or one of our weaknesses and we just give up? I can never do this. I, I've, I, I'm just done. I'll try something different. Or how many times at work, or at church, or in our bowling league, or whatever, has something gone away we didn't like. We didn't like what was happening, so I'm out of here. Just easier if I leave. Just go find, I'll just go find another bowling league. I'll find someplace else to work, someplace else to worship. Why is it that that is our common experience with broken things? We, we purge them from our lives. It's like, when things are broken, we think they're no longer of any use to us, so we might as well 
get rid of them. But what we're seeing in this series and what we're going to see today, that in the hands of Jesus, brokenness is a good thing. That when we put our brokenness, when I put my brokenness into Jesus' hands, when I entrust it to the God of the universe, that brokenness doesn't become something that, that has to be purged, but it becomes a conduit through which God's blessing comes. Again, to, to go back to bread, bread can't be shared unless it's broken. Brokenness in God's economy becomes not just a good thing, but an essential thing if God's blessedness, if God's blessing is going to come on a person or through a person. So today, what we'd like to do is to examine this idea, this word, broken. As we talk about brokenness, there's three essential kinds of brokenness that I think we, we need to identify and, and, and identify with. And the first one is a brokenness that comes from my frailty. A brokenness that comes from my frailty. About six and a half, seven years ago, I was dealing with some heavy stuff. Some stuff that I couldn't work through on my own. And so I, I made a commitment on a regular basis, I will see a Christian therapist. Now this guy was um, uniquely suited, I think, to, to work with me. He has a Master's of Divinity, which is a, a degree that pastors usually pursue. And he had a doctoral degree in psychology. So, so my sessions were kind of like a hybrid between Christian therapy and pastoral counseling which is exactly what I needed at the time. And I remember several sessions into meeting with him, um, I, I came up against a wall, and I was frustrated. And, and on this particular session, I went into a, a frustrated rant about how I couldn't do this. This hurts too much. I can't, I, I, I don't have the strength to get through this. I'm not good enough. And my counselor, my therapist, my, he said, what do you mean by that? What do you mean you're not good enough? I don't like the question. So when I don't like a question... I avoid it. And so I wasn't going to answer. And I just sat there and I stared at him like, how dare you ask me that question? And I figured the longer I stare, the sooner he's going to ask another question so I don't have to answer that one. But this guy was good. And he knew that, well, he was willing just to sit there. I guess he was getting paid anyway. It doesn't matter. He was willing to sit there in silence and stare back at me. So eventually my eyes started to leak. I started to cry. And I said, I'm, 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 I'm just not good enough. He said to me, Earl, 
What does God have to say about that? What does God have to say about that? And I sat there crying and going through his Kleenex box and he said, Earl, right now, ask God, what does he say about you not being good enough? So I listened and I said, I don't know. I, I think he's saying, you know what, Earl, you're not good enough. But that's okay because Jesus is good enough and he lives in you. There's a frailty that we all carry that makes us not good enough. We have limitations. We have things that we can't do. We're not strong enough. We're not perfect. None of us. We've all got weaknesses. We've, we've all got limitations. We've all got things that, that rub us raw, things that we struggle with, that we can't seem to overcome. We, we have an inability to be everything to everybody. We, uh, we often have an acute awareness, whether we'll acknowledge it or not, an acute awareness of our shortcomings, of our weaknesses, of what we can't do. Now, sometimes in life, I don't know about you, different personalities perhaps respond differently, but sometimes in life, I'm able to take my weaknesses and I'm able to set them aside or behind me and forget that they're there and move forward like I don't have them. Sometimes I'm able to ignore my limitations or, or to figure out a way to uh, work around them or, or navigate them in a way that, that I don't feel them. But we can't do that forever. We can't even do that for very long. Try as we may, we can't set aside the fact that we're frail. We're humans. We have weaknesses. We have shortcomings. That's part of the brokenness that we all share. And that can hurt, but not nearly as bad as the second kind of brokenness we need to talk about. And that's a brokenness that comes from my failure. We all deal with a brokenness that comes from my failure. Now get this, the brokenness that comes from our frailty and the brokenness that comes from our failure is often only separated by inches. Oftentimes we fail because of our frailty. So for example, last Sunday after worship, I lost my church keys. Now, I can say this to you today for two reasons. One, the guy who's in charge of keys isn't among us today. <laughs> and I'm fairly confident he doesn't listen to my sermons when he misses, so he's not going to hear this, and you're not going to tell him. <laughs> and two, the other reason I could tell you is because I found him again later. So you know the end of the story. Or you, don't have to, you don't have to wonder about that, and should you report me. But losing my church keys, I know it doesn't sound like a big deal, right? It's a big deal. See, at Beulah, if you don't understand how big of a deal this is, it's because you've never had a reason to have keys for anything here at the church. At Beulah, if you're going to have any Beulah keys, you have to sign like 12 pieces of paper. You have to pay like a $1,000 non-refundable deposit. And you have to promise never even to think of losing your keys. And then you have to donate a kidney and a half. 
Okay, it's not quite that bad. It is two pieces of paper, and, and I think there's a, a deposit or something. I don't know, but I lost my keys. When you lose your keys, you do have to have an unpleasant conversation with the keeper of the keys. And I've never had that conversation because I've never officially lost my keys. But I've been around after other people have. And it's not a pleasant conversation. I didn't realize my keys were lost until Sunday afternoon. I had a couple of appointments, so I came back to the church. Uh, Casey and the other basketball players were here. I pointed over there. Casey is not there, but he's here. Casey brings some guys over. They play basketball. Thankfully, they unlocked, had unlocked the front doors. So I got in the building, and I'm going, oh, my keys. And so, you know, I'm checking all the places, checking my coat pockets. I'm thinking, did I leave them in my car? And I start to realize, I don't know where they're at. I don't know where my church keys are. And I'm dreading the conversation that's going to come. I'm dreading the money I could have to pay to replace them. I'm like, oh, what do I do? And so I called my, or I texted my family to come let me in my office, thinking surely they're on my desk. And my wife calls me and she says, um, I know where your keys are. You left them sitting where you usually leave them sitting when you preach on Sunday morning. Yes, I did. You see, after worship last week, after I got done preaching, out of nowhere, I developed a headache. And, and it was one of those that comes on fast, and it's like, whoa, it kind of leaves you rocking back on your heels. And I wasn't thinking straight about hardly anything. And I forgot to pick up my keys, by the way. I kept them in my pocket today. And so I, a huge failure losing my keys came from the fact that I'm human, right? We all get headaches. It's just part of our human condition. But when I talk about a brokenness that comes from our failure, I'm not talking about those kind of, you know, oops, oops, got a headache, forgot where I left my keys. I'm talking about the kind of failure that is an intentional, willful decision to do something I know I shouldn't do. Or the kind of brokenness that is, I know I should do something, but I don't do it. You see, that's what the Bible calls sin. Both when I know there's something I should do and I don't do it, and when I know there's something I shouldn't do and I do it, those are willful decisions that the Bible calls sin. And if I'm to be honest, I think if you're to be honest with me, that kind of failure causes more pain and more brokenness in my life than my frailty does. And even more than our third kind of brokenness, a brokenness that comes from our fallenness. A brokenness that comes from our fallenness. I say our fallenness because it's, it's, uh, there's a sense, there's a biblical sense in which not just we as humans are fallen, but, but, but we as a, as a planet are fallen. As a matter of fact, Scripture is pretty clear that everything on this earth is coming apart at the seams. I mean, healthy people suddenly, for no explanation, become ill. Viruses and diseases appear and they, you know, they ravish the globe. And, and, and good people, people who don't deserve it, experience pain and suffering that, that just isn't fair and it's just not right. But the Bible describes this as a condition that, that all of the earth and its inhabitants have to deal with. As a matter of fact, Paul says it like this in Romans 8. He says, creation is subject 
to frustration. Creation is in bondage to decay. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. There's a sense in which we just live. It's not just a sense, it's the reality that we just live in a broken place where everything around us is falling apart and try as we may, we just can't always keep it together. We can't always put it back together. There's a brokenness that comes from our frailty, from our failures, and, and from our fallenness. And it's into the midst of that brokenness that Jesus speaks these words from Luke chapter 22. I'm going to start reading at verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So we're familiar with this scene. We're familiar with these verses. We repeat them and variations of them at least 12 to 14 times a year here whenever we receive communion. We're familiar with what's happening. Jesus is meeting with his disciples and what they didn't know. He knew they didn't know that this would be the, the last supper, which is what we've come to call it, right? As far as the disciples knew, though, they were just celebrating Passover, Passover is a Jewish holiday that the Jews had celebrated for, for eons. It goes all the way back to the, the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, where the, the, the Israels are slaves in Egypt. They're in bondage in Egypt. And God has now come and he said, I am going to set my people free. I'm going to lead them out of slavery because I made a promise to Abraham that I would bless his people. And that they would be as numerous as the, you know, the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And that all of the earth, everyone who lives on earth would be blessed through them. And so now I'm going to make good on my word. And so the, the book of Exodus tells us the story of God sending Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go so that they can go into the wilderness and worship me. And, and Pharaoh time after time after time said, no, I won't do it. You're not taking away my labor force. It's not going to happen, not going to happen, not going to happen. Finally, got, God got so fed up. Pharaoh's heart was so hardened that God said, here's what's going to happen. Tonight, through the land, my judgment on sin and human brokenness is going to fall. And on every household in the land of Egypt and in the land of Goshen, the firstborn son is going to die. But you can escape this if you'll take a, a blemishless lamb from your, uh, your flock 
and if you'll kill it and put its blood over your doorpost. Then when my judgment on sin falls, I'll see the blood and I'll skip over your house and no one inside that house will die. And that's what happened. And so for years, for centuries, the Jews remembered God's saving work. They remembered his judgment on sin and human brokenness and his grace and his mercy that he would pass over their house when it had the blood of the faultless lamb on it. And, and this celebration of Passover was, was one of two celebrations that, that gave Jews concrete, tactical reminders of God's mercy. The other one is called, in English, the Day of Atonement. In Hebrew, Yom Kippur. Perhaps you remember about Yom Kippur. This one happens in the fall. Passover's in the spring. And so about, about every six months or so, Jews are remembering we are broken people, but we have a gracious God. On, on Yom Kippur, what would happen traditionally is the, the, the high priest would take two goats and he would lay his hand on one, and he would confess the sins of the people of, of the entire nation. And then that goat would be led into the wilderness to die. It was, it was a symbol that God was removing the guilt of the people's sin from them. The guilt was being carried away with the goat. But you remember I said there were two goats, right? And so the other goat would be sacrificed. And its blood would be splashed on the, on the altar. And that goat became the symbol of the cost of sin. That God doesn't tolerate sin. That there's always judgment for sin. Sin always leads to death. If you've been around, you've heard me say this countless times. Sin always, always, always leads to death. It may be the death of a relationship. It may be the death of a dream. It may be the, the death of a goal or uh, physical death in our own body, but not complete you know, mortality. And ultimately, we do face mortality because of sin. Sin always leads to death. And so that second goat was what took the place, the punishment that was deserved for the sin of the people. And so as Jesus stands with his disciples on this, their last celebration together of Passover, although they don't realize that yet, he says to them, this is my body and this is my blood. Your guilt for your sin, for your brokenness is going to be placed on me. It's going to be removed from you. And my death, my blood being shed is what is going to take the place of the punishment that you deserve. There's going to be a new covenant between you and God. You no longer need to sacrifice animals, lambs, goats, heifers. You no longer need to do that because I'm going to stand in the place. I am going to take away your guilt. I'm not talking about the kind of guilt where we go, hmm, man, I, you know, I, I open mouth and insert foot and I feel bad about that. I'm sorry. I'm not talking about the small G guilt where the, where the Holy Spirit says to us, 
you just sinned. You need to deal with that. You need to confess it and repent it. I'm not talking about that. We still have that because that's God's grace to us. I'm talking about the capital G guilt where God looks at us and sees sinners. Sees people who were broken beyond repair. And judges us as that. Jesus says, my body and my blood are going to take away your guilt. I'm going to stand in your place. I'm going to take the punishment that you deserve for your sin. It's gone because of what I'm about to do, if you will receive that. You know, but there's a sense in which what Jesus did and was saying he was going to do was different. I mean, for centuries, lambs had been sacrificed and goats had been, you know, sent into the wilderness and, and sacrificed. That had happened for centuries and people's sin was removed from them. God didn't 